Is Atlanta the new Minneapolis? Is the judicial branch the new legislative branch? And is 2020 the new 1984? I'm Josiah Everton, and this is The Glorious Rescue. Welcome back to another episode of The Glorious Rescue. Today, we're going to primarily focus on just two brief stories before jumping into our end of show segment. But before I do, again, I just want to reiterate the goal of this show. The goal of this show is really to be able to be your one-stop shop to hit all the main stories in current events in a consolidated manner. We're playing a little bit of catch-up on some of these stories here, but after we do so, and after we cover some of the topics that I do want to cover, we're going to be able to consolidate all of our news consumption really into about 10 to 15 minutes one or two times a week to reduce all the negativity and all of the narrative being pushed by the mainstream media. We see it all the time. The narratives, the confusion, the spin, the bias, but also just the sheer negativity and volume of disappointing information we are bombarded with every single day with the news. And so here at The Glorious Rescue, we desire to really lighten that load, be able to give you the consolidated stories for you to be able to stay informed and yet not feel like you're being overwhelmed and inundated with the news cycle. So if that's a goal you align with and want to share with others, please do so. Remember on Instagram, we're at The Glorious Rescue, so give us a follow. And if you're going to share this episode or any of our previous episodes, make sure to tag The Glorious Rescue over on Instagram. Again, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star review. If you have any comments, criticisms, please direct message me over at Glorious Rescue. And also, I would say uh, about a week ago, we celebrated National Best Friend Day. So in light of that, be a good friend to others and share this episode share the knowledge you're learning, and help them out and help us out. So the first story we're going to jump into is this new Atlanta shooting. So what happened? On Friday night, a man by the name of Rayshard Brooks was shot by police officers. Rayshard was a black individual, and the cops responding to this call were both white, I do believe. But we're going to get into this and see that it wasn't really racially motivated, at least from the evidence I could see. I posed the question at the beginning, is this the new George Floyd case? And I would argue, absolutely not. In the case of George Floyd, I claimed pretty uncontroversially that he was murdered. This case, I would not say is anything similar to it. We're going to quickly look into the report of it. This suspect was sitting in a drive-thru, drunk. The police were called because he was under the influence of alcohol and driving behind the wheel. The police officers approached this vehicle, approached the individual, and proceeded to talk to him. I believe the exchange went on for 15, 20. The total incident was about 25 minutes. So I would say they probably talked to him for a good 15, 20 minutes. Cordially, might I add. There's body cam footage. It happened right outside of Wendy's. There's exterior camera footage. All of it seems to give evidence to the fact that it was cordial conversation. They obviously had him do a walk the line test and other sobriety tests and noticed that he was failing. He was under the influence. He was drunk. And that's why the police officers were called to the scene in the first place. So, Rayshard is drunk. Police officers have responded. They've cordially talked to him for 15, 20 minutes. They've done multiple tests. And it is now time to detain the suspect. So, they do so. The two officers begin to when he resists the arrest. Not only does he just resist arrest, but then he also assaults the officers. He brings them down to the ground, steals one of their tasers continues to flee the scene, turns around, points the taser at a police officer, actually fires it, either misses or before it hits the officer, he is shot twice in the back by one of the police officers. This is substantially different than the George Floyd case. George Floyd was detained, 
He was laid on the ground and he was suffocated by a police officer's knee resting on his neck for over nine minutes while he went unconscious, before so, saying he can't breathe. In this instance, officers responded to a drunk driver, engaged with him cordially for a long period of time, attempted to arrest him, and then were resisted, not only resisted, but assaulted. There's body cam footage, there's camera footage, showing that the individual not only resisted the arrest, but then proceeded to assault the officers, taking them to the ground, stealing one of their tasers from off his belt, fleeing the scene, turning around, and attempting to tase one of the police officers before he was shot. This is substantially different than the George Floyd case, and I will emphatically claim that. Mind you, the removal of an officer's weapon from his belt constitutes the officer to be able to use deadly force. The perpetrator, once he demonstrates that he has the intention to remove a weapon from an officer's belt to harm that officer, which he did by removing the taser and firing it at the officer, when a perpetrator does that, it constitutes the use of deadly force. For if he would pull the taser off and fire it at him, let's say he hits the officer with the taser, what would stop him, because he's already previously demonstrated he would remove something from an officer's belt, what would stop him from going back to that officer, pulling the lethal firearm from that officer's belt, and shooting him? An officer does not have to be assaulted for the use of deadly force to be constituted. If there is intention to do so, the police officer may do so in self-defense, and that is clearly what he did. Like I mentioned, the headlines coming out of the mainstream media are completely biased. I've heard some crazy things. I've heard that because a taser is non-lethal, the police officer should not have used lethal force. That's simply untrue. It was perfectly within that officer's right to use deadly force, and that's what was done. It wasn't an intentional racial issue, otherwise the police officers would not have really engaged that individual for 15-20 minutes cordially. And continuing with the whole ridiculous backlash, outrage, and response to this whole situation, the Wendy's, you know the drive through that this whole incident took place at, it was burned down. Not only was it burned down, but people are saying it was justified. For instance, Stacey Abrams said it was justified. Not only that, but she said a man was murdered because he was asleep in a drive through and we know that this is not an isolated incident. I'm sorry, but he was asleep because he was passed out drunk. And someone in the vicinity, whether it be a Wendy staff member or someone just in that vicinity, was worried because it was a drunk driver on the road, called the police, and the police responded. That police officer, by the way, immediately discharged. Not only that, but he's possibly facing a murder charge. The district attorney there stated that he was not, quote, any kind of threat to anyone. I'm sorry, not any kind of threat to anyone? He shot a taser at a police officer after throwing both of them to the ground. But yeah, people are saying that the burning down of Wendy's was justified, that this police officer needs to be charged. Once again, no due process for this officer. And given the evidence, there's no case for a murder charge. Anyways, we're not going to really continue to discuss that. I don't necessarily know if it's that controversial. I definitely don't think it should be. But that's our main story. Quickly, we're going to hop over to yesterday's Supreme Court's ruling. Absolutely horrible. I'm not going to go into too much detail of the actual ruling, but we are going to discuss the ramifications of it. I'm not really going to discuss the details here because it might not necessarily be appropriate for all ages uh, of all the listeners here, but we are definitely going to discuss the ramifications. Basically, what they ruled is that a business, an organization, that part's kind of unclear, cannot discriminate people of the LGBT community. We'll put it that way. Not only members of the community, but people who engage in that type of behavior. I want you to remember that this court, this Supreme Court, is the one that in recent months, the past several months, has denied a very large number of requests for Second Amendment cases. Yes, it's established that an American can own and possess a gun within their home. 
But there's been lots of cases now that have come up saying, well, what about a business and issues regarding keeping a gun for your own business protection? Cases in regards to concealed carry, open carry, and many, many others. And this court has repeatedly denied these cases. And yet they get a request for this and they automatically bring it up. It's very easy to see the politics in this. This month's June. It's Pride Month. And they're trying to make a political statement. I also want you to remember that, that this was not only pushed by, but also the opinion was written by Gorsuch. Yes, Gorsuch. The Supreme Court justice recently appointed by Donald Trump. The one that everyone paraded as an originalist, as a textualist. He was the one who wrote the majority opinion on this case. It's an absolute horrible ruling in three different areas. First of all, it's a horrible ruling in the idea of big government and whether or not this is even an issue for our government. It's also now an issue in regards to the separation of powers and the judicial branch and whether or not it's within the judicial branch's jurisdiction to legislate from the bench. And lastly, it's a horrible detriment and danger to any type of religious organization, business, etc. The court ruled in favor of this community six to three. The four liberal justices and then obviously Roberts and Gorsuch. The basic ruling here in this court case is arguing that a Christian business, I would say even organization, can now have no moral code of conduct, can have now no standard of hiring and firing people based on that individual's morality. It is possible that this doesn't necessarily extend to maybe churches and whatnot and overtly religious organizations, but even that's still unsure. Definitely Christian businesses, I would say maybe foster agencies with religious tendencies now can have no moral codes of conduct, meaning they can't hire or fire someone if they are found in disagreement with that organization's standard by what they believe is right and wrong. So there's first the issue of big government. Should government really be even in this situation? Because last I checked, America is a country of limited government where it stays out of unnecessary situations. And this is definitely one of those scopes in which I do not believe government has any right to dictate. Not only that, but it is not the judicial branch's job to legislate from the bench. These types of rulings, I would say legislation, have been pushed around back and forth in the legislature because it would need to come through a law for this policy to go through. But instead, the concept of government by the consent of the governed, you know, where we as citizens get to freely elect our representatives for them to deliberate upon these issues, is completely bypassed because now the Supreme Court has ruled without our say. So not only is it not the government's job, but it is not the Supreme Court's job to legislate from the bench. They've completely circumvented the whole concept of the separation of powers and consent of government. And now we get into the harm it's going to cause these religious organizations. Like I said, churches might be exempt. We don't necessarily know. But what we do know is now there's basically no moral codes of conduct by which a Christian business or organization can hire and fire staff members. The ramifications, the precedents being set here are completely endless. And it is horrible to think that with radiant applause, the degradation of churches, religious businesses, and organizations continues. It is a huge breach of power, and it is a huge danger to our nation. We will have more information on this court case ruling and the ramifications of it as the story continues to develop, but really this case was just ruled yesterday, and so I just wanted to give you a quick synopsis of it and kind of detail some of the ramifications of it. Those were two stories for today, the Atlanta shooting and the Supreme Court ruling. 
Today's end of show segment will be our first ever examination of the vast past. Welcome to the very first segment of the vast past. A little bit of a distinction here to make between this segment and other segments like the founding era, teach the speech and many others is that yes, this segment is going to touch on certain historical items, but they may not necessarily be derived from the founding era in America, and they might not necessarily be derived from American history at all, maybe from a different region or country or whatnot. And obviously it wouldn't cover speeches because those would be in another segment, but the topics could vary from anything to books, people, events, or other items throughout history that I believe are not only important, but I would say are very applicable to the world we see today. And with that comes this segment discussing George Orwell's book, 1984. And this is a book that I read back in high school. I, I at least read excerpts from it and recently reread it. And a little bit of a caveat here to the audience would be that there are a few little areas that I would recommend discretion with younger people reading. So I want to throw out that little tidbit for you. But I do recommend this book, and it is very enlightening and I have to say, you will have mixed feelings there. At least I had mixed feelings reading this book. You are very interested, very intrigued, and yet extremely afraid. And I think once we do a little bit of a walkthrough here in this book, you'll understand why. We're going to kind of follow the general format we normally do with these end-of-show segments. We're going to give a little bit of a background information to the book and George Orwell himself, and then do a complete walkthrough. I wouldn't say extremely extensively. I would recommend that you do read this book. But we'll jump into a little bit of the background, do a walkthrough, and then wrap it up with how it applies to the world today. George Orwell's 1984 was actually written back in 1949. So you can see here it's a little bit of a prediction, and that's the point George Orwell wanted to make, is that he was writing this book in 1949, predicting what the future will look like in 1984. Uh, and it's a depiction of London, and it focuses on an individual named Winston Smith and his, I guess you could say, his dingy life under... A totalitarian regime. The author, his pen name was George Orwell, his real name was Eric Blair, and Eric Blair grew up as a democratic socialist, and I believe he did so his entire life. So there is a little bit of an irony there that I want to mention, that he grew up as a democratic socialist his entire life and still wrote against totalitarian regimes. Where his motive comes from is that at some point, he was born in India, but he moved further up north into the northern Indian region, now known as Pakistan, to become a police officer. And really here is where he became not only affiliated with communism and a communist regime, but he really dealt with it hands-on. I would say it's where he saw the tragedies and really how he predicted the future in a lot of these situations. So now let's take a walk through of the book. Like I mentioned, it focuses on a man named Winston Smith, and here he lives in London, and he lives under a totalitarian regime. This book is really where the term Big Brother was coined, and Big Brother represents an overruling party, kind of the totalitarian ideal. And this book displays three tenets of the party. One, war is peace. Two, freedom is slavery. And three, ignorance is strength. Those themes are basically pushed by the party throughout the entire book. Winston's job here in this book is to rewrite history. And when I say that, I mean in every literal sense. He literally, along with thousands of others, would examine old newspapers, read them thoroughly, burn them, and rewrite those old newspapers to conform to party ideology. It is interesting for me to note that the party worked to control the flow of information, meaning the mainstream media, the storage of information, which is what I would call history, and the teaching of information, the education system. 
and we'll get into this a little bit later in the application area, but as we walk through this book, the entire time, this party dominates these aspects of society, the media, history, and education. And Winston's job, like I mentioned, is to literally rewrite history to conform to the party's desire. So they control that history through history revision, and they have people actively rewriting history to conform to their ideals. But then they also control the flow of information, meaning the media. Not only does this brutal party control the mainstream media, but like I said, it controls the passing on of information to children. In this book, Winston notices that children often have animosity against their parents because they are being brainwashed by the state to hate their parents. And it's all done because the state, the party, controls the education system. Not only that, but it controls the media, and it controls history. And from this oppressive regime comes the title of 1984. Winston, in his apartment, has this little, I guess you could say, inlet in his house where telescreens can't see. And telescreens were basically cameras all over. And they recorded everything. And the citizens didn't know if it was random or if people were watching at all times. But Winston had a little bit of a workaround. And that was this little inlet in his house that the cameras couldn't see. But what he did with this inlet was he began a diary. And if he was found with this diary or writing in this diary, he would suffer execution. And yet he begins this diary dating it April 4th, 1984. And that's where the title comes from. And it's from that diary that really the whole story is recounted. And he continues to write in his diary. And as the story ends, he is found out. He's captured and tortured. And really, yes, this book does end with a very grim tragedy. And in this tragedy, there's pity and fear. We finish this book and, and we pity his story, but we also fear that it may be ours. So what do we learn from this? So let's jump into the application. I believe that the primary lesson to learn from this book is to be wary of government overreach. It's to be wary of an extremely large executive bureaucratic government, really the rise of which we have seen in America in the last 80 years. And when they do that, we are now setting the stage for the destruction of individual liberty. I think 1984 is especially applicable to our world today and the current events we are seeing now in regards to the idea of the collective versus the individual. In fact, it is stated in this book, individuals don't exist, only the collective. I'm going to give a little bit of a paraphrase to illustrate what I mean from this book. This statement or paraphrase comes from O'Brien when he is torturing Winston. He says, it's, it's time for you, Winston, to gather some idea of what power is. The first thing for you to realize is that power is in the collective. The only power of an individual is to cease to be an individual and to join this collective. Alone, free, the human is dead. But if he can merge with the party, he is then immortal. The idea being that the only purpose an individual has is to join the collective. He has no individual rights. There is no power in being an individual. That is only found in being part of the collective. Now this contradicts the Western idea that's the pillar, or one of the pillars of American ideology and has been since our founding, that the individual is created in the image of God. And because the individual is created in the image of God, that individual has specific rights defined in the law of nature and of nature's God. Do you believe that rights are divinely given by God and expressly protected by government, given to the individual, passed on through individuals? Or do you believe that the only reason an individual exists is to cease to be an individual and join that collective as a group? rather than all of us as individuals trying to protect our God-given rights. And that's what's scary about George Orwell's 1984. 
That is what I wanted to pass on to you. Once again, I will emphatically claim that as we look through founding documents, key books, key moments in history, we really can see how they apply to our world today. And I would say that understanding these deeper issues, though maybe not as immediate, I would argue are all the more important because they are more lasting, more eternal. And it is understanding these principles that will help guide our opinions, policies, and worldview for current events. So with that, we're going to wrap up our episode. Again, a couple quick reminders. If you are going to follow us over on Instagram, please do so at The Glorious Rescue. Share this episode like I mentioned earlier. You can do so by sharing it through your podcast playing portal. If you're going to do so over on your Instagram story, please tag The Glorious Rescue. Or if you're going to quote a certain statement that I made, please once again tag us at The Glorious Rescue. Over on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. And if you have any suggestions, tips, criticisms whatsoever, make sure to direct message me over at The Glorious Rescue. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Josiah Everton, and this is The Glorious Rescue. Mm-hmm.